Welcome to the BMJ Podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. Coming up, a vision of the future of medical care, which focuses not on metrics, but on humanism. It made me feel um, really almost ashamed uh, at the way I had jumped at something, paying attention to a number that represented my patient's health rather than his health expressed in his own words. Now, it's been the RCGP conference this week, as you may have seen from the newspaper headlines. But before all of that kicked off, our news reporter Gareth Iacobucci caught up with Claire Gerarda as her tenure as chair of the college comes to a close. Claire Gerarda has been chair of the UK's Royal College of General Practitioners for three years, in which time the English Health Service has faced huge upheaval. There's been a fundamental reorganisation of services and GPs, the members of her college, have been forced to take on a new role within the health service in charge of spending. As she prepares to stand down from her current role before taking on a new position with NHS England, I sat down with her at the RCGP's headquarters in Euston, central London. To start with, um, I thought it would be good to ask you to sum up your time as RCGP chair. <laughs> in, in sort of a brief terms. It's been like an episode of the West Wing every single day. It's been unbelievably busy. Every day something different, a new challenge, new crisis, new task. Alongside the undercurrent of some of the major things that have been there, so for example the first year, first half, year and a half probably the Health and Social Care Bill but we've had our examination issue, we've had our extended training issue, we've had this building which has started in my yeah. my chairmanship. So unbelievably busy and fascinatingly interesting. You sort of touched on it, I think, when, particularly when you mentioned the West Wing. You obviously were part of a movement of doctors who were opposed to the introduction of the Health and Social Care Bill, which then became an act. I wanted to ask you, now that it's law, what, if anything, would you like a college to do in response to the challenges it poses? Yeah, well, let's just say where we are at the moment. It's I think the BMJ front cover said Lansley's monster. We certainly have got a monster. We've got such disorganisation, many, many groups. There's no levers. You pull the lever, they're not attached to anything. It's like the Wild West in healthcare. Uh, no one really knows who's in charge. So what actually the college is doing and should be doing is to try and seize some of the major issues that we need to address. So, for example, I published the 2022 Vision for General Practice, which spells out how GP should be working. We should be looking at how we're going to deliver safe, effective care for our frail elderly. We should be looking at how we're going to deliver out-of-hours care. And I think it's important that we all get on with it and do it, despite this Health and Social Care Act, which has caused a a monumental disruption to the health service and has demoralised most of those that are working in it. Yeah, and I think you've certainly been praised by many, I think, during your, is it three years? Three years. For your sort of willingness to speak out on political issues. But there are also others who have said, you know, a chair of Royal College is sort of going beyond their remit. What would you say to those? I mean... I guess what I'd be interested to get in terms of an opinion is, was it a conscious decision on your part that you 
were going to sort of play in the political world, no. or do you feel it was sort of driven by what happened? I think it was driven by history. I think it's from where my position was as well. I was, even though I was vice chair before I became chair, I wasn't very much in the, the political tent, so to speak. Yeah. I, I was, and I'd been a GP and running sick doctor services, and I think what happened was that I wasn't part of the process leading up to the discussions around the Health and Social Care White Paper Act, which others must have been because it yeah. was born from somewhere. And I think maybe others became far too close and therefore didn't realise what a disaster Lansley's bill was. Yeah. And married to that, traditionally presidents don't speak about politics but actually I would say that health is politics the health system is political with a small p it's not party politics it's part of every single charity's objective to speak out around healthcare and what is more obvious is that so few did what are royal colleges for if not to 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 speak out so it wasn't a conscious decision rather Naively, I suppose, I believe that this is my role. What else is my role? It's not to dine, as I have done probably around about 200 times a year on behalf of the college, so thank God I haven't put on too much weight. <laughs> it's not to go to conferences. It's not to just to do award ceremonies. It's not just to chair council, but it's to speak out for our patients. And, I mean, looking forward, I mean, would you hope that your success at... And- chairs beyond that carry on that sort of um, in that spirit I suppose um, yes if if medical leaders don't speak out I'm uh, urging for example that medical leaders now speak out around the issues of poverty and austerity where is the medical leadership talking about food banks that we have to speak out we have to Michael Marmot who did but where but we need to be speaking out if it's not us then who is it do you think you were prepared for it? No, absolutely, categorically not. Yeah. I mean, even though I have had a lifetime of being at quite senior level, I mean, yeah. I've held national and international roles, yeah. and political with a small p, I mean, as chair of the LMC, nothing prepared me for the first five days of my chairmanship when I was yeah. catapulted onto the front page of the paper, the first item in the in, on the Today programme, and was just... I, I, that first weekend, I, I, I rang 40 people to seek advice about what was going on. And at the end of it all, I realised that nobody could tell you what to do. You had to do the thing yourself. And that was the first real awakening of what leadership meant. You took advice, but fundamentally you had to do it. And you could continue to take advice until the cows came home, but you had to make a decision. And that... And I suppose the lesson I learned very early on was leadership is lonely, very, very lonely. You can dissipate it, got a fantastic type team at the college, but in the end, yeah. it's me in front of the camera, it's me in front of my profession, it's me in front of, of, of a health select committee. Um, so tell us about your new role, because we, we know you've um, got a new role with NHS England. Brackets London Region. Brackets London Region as <laughs> clinical chair for primary care transplant. Thank you for saying that, Gareth, <laughs> because I often forget what I. <laughs> Sorry, I have to write No, no, I, I often um, forget, and it's a, uh, it's a. I think it's a, it's an interesting role. It's trying to take off where Darcy left off a few years ago, and to say, and ironically or coincidentally, Darcy's leading a, a commission for 
the mayor. So Darcy's yeah. going. So we'll be working very closely together. It's trying to move my profession from where it is now to where I think we should be moving to, which is much more federations, much more integrated working, yeah. and in a way protecting what's best about general practice, but but moving it on. It's also about trying to uh, persuade other parts of the health system within London that the only way to deal with the problems we face is by engaging and, and investing in general practice, which we have been punished yeah. for earning more money in 2004, 2006. And we now know that general practice is, is dying and needs an enormous investment. So I will be working with others across London to try and do that. Yeah, and is it, is, it's a part-time role? So one day a week. I'm trying to lobby yeah. to get it to two days a week because I can't do it on one day a week already. Yeah. Okay, well... Um... I think, yeah, sticking with that, I mean, you talked a little bit about federations. Is that one of the things that's the key to what primary care... I think it's more than federations, actually. Federations are the college developed federations which provide organisations merging GP practice. I think it's got to go beyond that. I think, in fact, I wrote this in August 2010. So actually, I think, if anything, we need to have, at the very least federations including other providers so other being community trust community yeah. services social care and i also think we need to be involving acute care yeah. in new organizations headed up by gps we're not yeah. talking about vertical integration foundation trust i'm talking about new organizations yeah. with joint funding where we can start to say now how can we work differently can we eliminate the uh, internal market and actually start to reduce some of the transaction costs and yeah. can we start to also put the patients in the centre of what we need to do and move the professionals around the patient which you can do I've been running since 1992 a shared care service for substance misuse and I run yeah. a mental health service so we put the patient in the middle and run we run around I think it's a tall order for GPs at the moment because they can't put the head above the parapet because of the workload but if they start to think about it, I think the small business model of general practice has probably seen its time. I think it served us well, but if you think about the health service, since 1948 everything has changed. The only things that haven't changed is the way general practice is organised and hospitals are organised. And can you think anything else in 65 years that hasn't changed? And whereas PMS and APMS went some way, I think we need to protect, as I said, what's best about generalism move us closer to our hospital and community colleagues so that we become one organisation and one service. Yeah. And from a sort of looking at specifically general practice, I mean, because I know obviously you're talking about a completely different model, but if we look at what's there now, then things like this monitor and report, is there a concern, I guess, that there's there's a desire to kind of try and sort of shake that up and, and make well, that into a sort of more I, well. I, I predicate this by my conflict of interest. I run a large organisation, yeah. uh, which I'm very proud of, and I think we've done immensely good work. Yeah. And I think we, as my organisation, have changed the delivery of primary care in some of the most deprived communities, full yeah. stop. But I actually think we need to all move on now, and I think that we... I would challenge and I would question whether we needed the independent contractor status I would question whether it actually means anything anymore when we're essentially salaried to the state anyway and I would also say which is counterintuitive for my own organisation whether if we and bear in mind I think we've done very well and done very good job whether actually what we need to do is to re-democratise general practice and actually allow the next generation who are coming up 
leadership positions, including how to lead these things that we currently call general practice. I think that it's increasingly difficult, twofold. One is because we have got a predominantly salaried model. It's happened. That's happened. It's happened very quickly. But the second is we haven't got the time or the space to change and to innovate. You cannot innovate when the last thing you want to do is to do anything other than go to bed because you're so tired. So I think we've got to to do that and I think we do that by inward investments into general practice through integration through new organisations where actually GPs form part of an integrated organisation, not-for-profit, contiguous with the local authority and they can stay independent contractors just like hospital doctors stay doing whatever they want to do privately outside yeah but it's it's absolutely that's what they're doing it's not part of what we would traditionally call the nhs okay it's very interesting stuff. <laughs> it's fascinating stuff, guys. i mean there's lots yeah. of ifs and buts my sense is it's not for me to do it it's for me to come up with the ideas yeah. and my general direction of travel if you want bottom line is it's invest in primary community care and we'll get a health service that that we 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 value and yeah. patients will do well and obviously one of the barriers to that in some ways at the moment is the fact that GPs are obviously in charge nominally of commissioning. Yeah, so they're not. It makes it... Well, they're that, not in that, charge that, of that commissioning. Was, that was my next question to you. To most what, of it's decommissioning. Uh, most of it is... I, 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 you're going to have to ask them. In my, in my view, they need a lot of empowerment to use their resources to invest in primary community care because they'll be accused of conflict of interest. I think it isn't a conflict. I'm very concerned about this new winter crisis money that's going to the emergency department. I've just been giving evidence at the London Assembly. It's it's pouring money, good money after bad. You you know, what is the point? Why not pay a GP practice to provide continuity of care for their top 400 attendees or top 200 attendees and stop those going into hospital. Why? Why are we? Yeah. Anyway. So, you're sceptical. I think it's fair to say of this. Sort of I think the commissioning reforms. Do do they have sufficient teeth or, or teeth to change things? Next, over to Trevor Jackson, BMJ's deputy editor, for why doctors need to get back to what's most important for patients. This week, we published an essay by David Loxterkamp, a family physician who lives and practices in Belfast, Maine, about humanism in medicine. David's thesis is that doctors are increasingly focusing on biomarkers and measures of performance, and that this has shifted their attention away from what is most important to patients. David joins me via Skype now to discuss his essay. So, David, could I ask you for an example of the kind of uh, doctor-patient consultations that prompted you to to feel that this was something missing in general practice? I never worried about it until recently when a patient came in to see me and had a form from his employer that had the, you know, the, the usual biomarkers that we, uh, we, we pay attention to now, body mass index and blood pressure and A1C and, and LDL cholesterol and so forth. And Immediately, my eye focused on the one elevation, which was a blood sugar that was slightly elevated. And I began spending all of my time talking about that and what diabetes was and so forth. I realized her time was up. I made an effort to get up and walk out. And he expressed his concern to me 
that we hadn't really addressed why he was there that day, which was uh, problems with his family and, and with his son. And it made me feel um, really almost ashamed uh, at the way I had jumped at something that I had until that point thought I was completely resisting, and that is paying attention to a number that represented my patient's health rather than his health expressed in his own words, his concerns expressed in his own words. That really prompted me to say, what, are, what am I doing? What are we doing? Um, we need to take some steps to guard against uh, having medicine become by the numbers rather than according to the impression and values of our patients. How can we kind of get around this so that that emphasis on data is not obscuring the things that really matter? I'm not sure that it, that it's going to be a matter of uh, getting around it. In other words, I think that data is here to stay. But what we can do, I think, is put it in, in perspective. I really think that the only way to match measurement, to beat measurement that we don't like, is to start measuring things we are more interested in. Come up with, a, with, with research priorities of our own that look at the value of continuity of care, that look at the value of patient education surveys. And of course, in the United States, and I expect this is true in Great Britain and elsewhere, uh, monetary issues in healthcare are at the forefront right now. And it's my hypothesis that if we spend more time with patients, we actually will order fewer tests, make fewer referrals, prescribe fewer medications, because we understand what they're there for, and that that's most important. You, you talk in the essay about how, on average, physicians spend 11 minutes with their patients and listen to their chief complaint for only 22 seconds before taking control of the interview. How can we get to a stage which, in which we actually switch that, that around so that there's much more equal interaction between patients and their physicians? Uh, that's an extremely important question that, that those of us who value relationships have to answer. There is a movement in the United States uh, that I'm only um, marginally aware of called direct primary care, in which patients purchase a subscription to their family doctor. Uh, it allows us to spend more time with patients, and patients know this in advance, so they can come in with their list of 10 questions and expect that all of them will at least be listened to, if not addressed that day. So there, I think there need to be um, certainly different reimbursement models that honor uh, the time we spend with patients and our commitment to listening to all of their questions and trying to address them. I also think that it's human nature, uh, at least among doctors, to want to be in charge, to want to take charge and, and set the priorities of the interview. We need to relax a little bit uh, with our patients. We need to offer them the space they need to tell their story in their words. And I think this takes a change in the training model that we've come to know, at least here in the United States, where the emphasis is on um, a very punctual, rapid attention to the one problem that we want to address, that is a doctor wants to address that day. You use this, just following on from that point, you use this very nice phrase in your essay describing doctors as agents of change. So you say, we are agents of change from disease to health, from brokenness to a more connected, responsive and responsible whole. Do you think that many other doctors see themselves in that role? Uh, I would say 
that at least those of us who have been in practice for a number of years absolutely do, Trevor. Um, I had the uh, delight a few years ago of attending a workshop on uh, practices that were trying to undergo a transition toward new models of healthcare. And one of us, and I don't remember who, posed the question, so what is the most important thing we need to pay attention to in practice transformation? And it generated a marvelous conversation among all of us attending. And we focused on the doctor-patient relationship as the number one focus of our job. When we've been in practice for a while, or even before, we see ourselves as problem solvers. And at the most, at the highest level of our capacity, we see ourselves as agents of change. And this is something that comes about in listening to patient stories. I wasn't trained to do this. Uh, this is just a matter of how patients have trained me to care for them. The greatest satisfaction I can have in a course of a day now um, is to be able to have a patient look me in the eyes at the end of a, of, a, of a session, of an interview, and thank me for understanding him or her, really understanding them. And I think fundamentally we need to reemphasize, this is really the job of the primary care physician in training, um, in writing, in research, is to come back all of us come back to what we're really trying to do in medicine, what we see our role as in medicine. And that role, if I could put it as succinctly as possible, is to get to know our patients deeply and to try to meet their needs where they are. Towards the end of the essay, David, you say it's not too late to retool the primary care workshop to redesign the product that patients are clamouring for. Could you explain how you think this is this can happen and what the next steps would be for those who believe that this is the way forward? It's a large order. It's a large order to fill. And uh, it takes, I think, family doctors really challenging themselves with what they see their role in medicine is and whether or not they're still performing that role. For me, it has always been about understanding the patient and trying to solve their problems with them. Um, and I'm finding it less and less possible to do that within the constraints of a 20-minute, which oftentimes turns into a 10-minute visit. I, I think that we actually need to change uh, the practice of medicine, the way it's practiced. Uh, increasingly, I found that it's helpful for me to talk with groups of patients, that is, form groups around a topic such as diabetes or any other chronic illness. We certainly do this uh, in addiction in our office, those who are addicted to uh, opioids, we can also, uh, I think, insist that we spend more time with our more difficult patients and certainly our more elderly patients. Time is of the essence. Time is, is, is money, as they say here in the States. And I think we do have to say that time is also our, our means of understanding who our patients are and what their needs are. One other area for which research really needs to focus is on connectedness on patients' connectedness in a community and its impact on their health. One of the things that I think we, we all know is that the elderly, the mentally ill, the very poor become isolated and therefore have no resources that will steer them back or even give them the motivation to come back to uh, what we would consider to be good health and good health practices. We need to create these, restore these communities for them. Um, sickness, 
by its very nature, takes us out of the communities from which we get our, our encouragement and our motivation to get better. My hope is that there will be new research lines. My hope is that we can change the style of the practices in our office to more individual time and certainly far more group time with our patients. And that we fundamentally understand our role in medicine is not to create a checklist for someone else, but rather to focus on that person that day who's entrusted us with their care. Really good. Thank you very much. That's everything for this week. Next Friday, we look at variant CJD caused by the BSE prion. We haven't seen a death from the disease since 2011, but are the prions that cause it still in the population? And also, another example of overdiagnosis, polyps in the bowel. Just before we finish, you may or may not know that the BMJ podcast is just one of a whole host that we publish. So for more medical talk, go to podcast.bmj.com. Thanks for joining us.